When President-elect John F. Kennedy asked Bob McNamara, then president of Ford Motor Company, to join his cabinet, McNamara said that he didn't know anything about government. JFK is said to have replied, well, we can both learn on the job. I don't know how to be president. And so it's been ever since, according to my next guest. Dr. Michael Siegel is senior education specialist at the Federal Judicial Center and adjunct professor at two local universities. He's also written a book, The President as Leader, and he joins me now. Dr. Siegel, good to have you in studio. Good morning, Tom. It's so good to be here. And I want to ask you first about the the Federal Judicial Center, and you're an educational specialist there. Do you train judges? What do you do there? Yeah, so I recently retired, but I used to, until July 30th, train federal judges, particularly chief judges in the area of leadership, uh, because you have to realize the people we put in charge of these sometimes massive organizations are lawyers who have very little managerial experience. And so we would work with them on how you lead people, how you motivate people, how you monitor a budget, how do you monitor IT, things like that, that wouldn't be in the purview of a legal mind necessarily, but are very important uh, when you become chief judge. I guess in many ways people don't realize that being a chief judge means you are in charge of a staff and there's a schedule and, as you say, information technology. People Mm -hmm. think of judges as people that just step in during the trials with the robes on and go back and contemplate great thoughts and come out with a decision. Exactly. And when they are in the position of of being in their robe, they're used to commanding and they're used to making decisions that nobody argues with. When they step into the leadership role, on the other hand, they've now got to build consensus. They've got to step out of the judge role and into the leadership role. And it's a very big transition. We used to say to them, when you go to become a chief judge, please take your black robe Hang it in the closet. It's very important to what you do on the bench, but it's not going to help you in this role. Got it. And did Judge Brown, now of Supreme Court nomination, ever cross into one of your classrooms? Well, I have not had the pleasure of working with her, but I have worked with some of her colleagues, including one she mentions often, Patty Saris, who was the chief judge in Massachusetts for a time, and also the head of the Sentencing Commission, which Judge Brown was also on. So yeah, we we get a lot of a lot of judges anybody who's below the Supreme Court, we don't dare touch the Supreme Court. Sure. And if a chief judge somewhere in the federal circuit in the federal system is a leader, what effect can good leadership skills have on their effectiveness as chief judges? Right. So they can understand that they can really make a difference that their tenure, which is typically seven years by statute, within that seven years, they can really accomplish a lot for the court. They can take that court. They can implement an automation program. They can implement a program for poor litigants. They can do a lot of different things, take the court in a different direction. They can upgrade the technology. They can upgrade the security, which is a big issue now. But they, they they can have an effect. And leaders, as we know, have a really dramatic effect on their institutions. Uh, one of the uh, challenges they face, again, is is what kind of power they have. One of the quips I like the best from a former chief judge was, when they handed me the reins of power, nobody told me there was nothing attached. And so great position, like the position of a chief judge, really cannot accomplish anything. It's the person in the position and the purpose. And you've got to believe at the start that you can make a difference. That's so important to leadership. And- Right. And I guess anything that can be done to increase the efficiency of the judicial process is a good thing because you hear about famous trials and famous criminal proceedings and someone's arrested and they're charged and the trial is going to start 
in six months or something mm-hmm. like that. And people, I think, generally scratch their heads. What takes it? Why not tomorrow? Yes. Yes, it's a complex process and it's in some ways very arcane, but the procedures really do help assure equal justice under law. And people schooled in it understand how to do it. Of course, we can always become more efficient. We could always increase the speed with which people are tried. There's legislation in the criminal area for speedy trial, not so much in the civil area. But uh, it is a very complex process. It's a very arduous, specific process, and it, but it ensures the protection of the rights of the litigants, and everybody gets a fair trial. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Siegel. He's senior education specialist at the Federal Judicial Center and author of, I guess, a revision of the book, The President as Leader. And let's talk about that a moment, the second edition I guess the first edition began at the outset of the Trump presidency, got controversial one. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's concluded, and you've looked at the beginning of the Biden years. What's new and fresh to say about presidential leadership? Yeah, well, what I do, Tom, is I, I apply a systematic leadership framework. I say that leadership in the White House is is actually assessable. We can assess it by using leadership criteria. The four I use that I've also used with chief judges actually are, do you have a vision Do you have a plan to execute your vision? Do you have a management strategy? And do you make good decisions? And I compare all eight presidents since Watergate on those four criteria. And what's new is that, you know, we've had a lot of lessons learned from past presidents, such as how not to make decisions. Uh, One of the things we learned, for example, going back to John Kennedy is you don't make decisions by having a group of yes men or yes women around you who just sort of sanction everything you want to do, but who have the courage to challenge you when you're going off base, who have the courage to disagree. We had a great exemplar of this in Obama, who went through a very thorough vetting process in the planning of the execution of Osama bin Laden. He heard a lot of dissenting views, most prominently from Robert Gates, his defense secretary, who had visions of a repeat of the um, Iran hostage mission failure. Yep. So uh, presidents have learned, Tom, to open up the channels of information open up the opinions before they make a decision. Yes, if you go back to the Nixon-Johnson era, people were afraid to to challenge them, and so they got themselves in kind of a closed-loop decision-making process that really destroyed both presidencies in some sense. Absolutely. It becomes an echo chamber, and the only voice you hear is the voice that agrees with you. And it's very hard to challenge the president, especially in the Oval Office. In fact, uh, George W. Bush, when he came in, he told Bob Woodward, Woody, you know, when people come in the Oval, they get pretty overwhelmed and they say, Mr. President, you're looking pretty good today. He said, Woody, what I need is for somebody to say, Mr. President, you're not looking so good today. Unfortunately, he didn't follow through on that advice, but it, it was very good advice. And what do we know about, say, earlier presidents, if anything, say Franklin Roosevelt or Warren Harding going way back or into the 19th century? Was it that imperial, to use a well-known phrase? Well, the power of the presidency certainly increased since the founding. The founding fathers could not have envisioned the world we live in, and the instruments they gave the president were rather limited. And people like FDR took a lot of liberty and added a lot of creativity to the office and imagined it doing things that that the founders would have never imagined. Now, the tendency is in the country when a crisis occurs— whether it's the Great Depression or the War on Terror, to elevate executive power, to give the power 
to the president. Even Congress relinquishes its own power, but expects to get that power back and to restore the equilibrium once the crisis passes. When you have a crisis that never passes, like, for example, the war on terror, then it becomes a difficult proposition. And maybe the problem is in the last any number of presidents, the one quality we haven't seen evident in any of them is humility. Absolutely. You know, Tom, I got a great quote from Mr. Zelensky. It was in a column by Maureen Dowd in the New York Times. He said, don't put portraits of me in your office. Put pictures of your children and look at them before you make a decision. Dr. Michael Siegel is senior education specialist at the Federal Judicial Center and author of The President as Leader. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.